Hey, if you have your Bibles, open them up. We're ready for Hebrews chapter 6 today. And as you're opening your Bibles, I got a quick announcement. I know we had lots today. But listen, I want to uh, show you guys something. I'll just show you the back. You just have to trust me. I'm holding a check here for $5,000. So um, we have uh, uh, someone in church, anonymously, obviously, someone's in church have um, decided that they would like to buy us an espresso machine. <laughs> so I just wanted to uh, let you know and, you know, get myself off the hook. I'm super blessed by this gift, too, because it's not only is it just super generous, but, you know, there was, there was some scuttle about us spending that much money on a cappuccino machine, on an on espresso machine, and now we don't have to because we didn't buy it. Someone, someone donated it. So, but super blessed, and I ordered it already, so um, it will be on the way. The thing is, we won't necessarily be ready to open the coffee shop right away, but um, just super excited about that. We do have the uh, uh, espresso machine coming, so if you see it, here's the deal. I promised the church when we started this project that the coffee bar was obviously a luxury and that um, understandably that construction stuff needed to finish first. And so we're really close to construction stuff finishing first, but I wanted to tell you so that if you see the coffee bar coming together before some of the other stuff, that I didn't go back on my word, that, that I'm keeping my word, but that the coffee, the coffee machine was a gift. And so we're super blessed by that, and uh, it'll be coming. You guys excited? So I'll just share with you guys, because everybody asks when I tell them about the coffee bar and espresso machine, um, our vision, our idea is... Um, we're going to continue to serve free black coffee with cream and sugar like we do now. So if you just want a regular cup of black coffee with cream and sugar, um, you, you can have that for free. And if you want a specialty drink like you would buy at Starbucks or Jana's or something, then we'll charge for that. So we'll try to um, keep our costs down. I don't know what our cost is. We don't hope to, as a church, make money in the coffee bar. Um, but we would, if it pays for the coffee and for the materials and it breaks, at least the vision would be to break even. So we'll try to set our prices on our specialty drinks based on breaking even. Everybody good with that? All right. Amen. You know, the thing is, I see everybody, you know, on Sunday mornings, oftentimes lots of people walk in with a Starbucks or a Jana's or you won't have to now. You just got to show up a few minutes early. And then when the coffee bar is done, um, you know, there'll be a place to sit down, hang out out there. Eventually we'll have a TV out there that if you want to stay out there the whole time, you just stay out there. And then we'll, we'll, we'll have from time to time some, you know, yogurts and continental stuff and bagels and breakfast sandwiches. And you can come early and, and get a cup of coffee and a breakfast sandwich and hang out. And, and, and really the vision for that, and then we'll have the, if the conference room is done, we'll have extra place to sit down and hang out. Um, and the vision would be, thank you so much, Pat. The vision is so that um, we, we can promote fellowship. And really that's our goal. You know, um, in Acts 2.42, we have the four pillars of the early church. And two of the four things that God tells us that we should do as Christ followers um, have to do with fellowship. And so fellowshipping and loving one another and loving across the aisles and getting to know people. And, and it's really valuable for your Christian walk. And again, I don't want to undervalue that. You know, what we do as far as worship and teaching, it's a part of it. The baptisms, the, the receiving communion, the, the giving, the receiving, those things are all a part of. But a big part of you growing and developing in your Christian walk is fellowship is iron sharpening iron, meeting other Christians that are maybe, you know, around your, your demographic somewhere that, that, you know, can, you can be friends with, that you can have over to the house when you have birthday parties and celebrations and people that are like-minded and trying to create in a, in a county that's less than 1% evangelical Christian, trying to create more Christian culture and Christian fellowship among um, the people. You know, one of the things that happens to folks is, and maybe some of you guys are in this boat, maybe not, but you, you come to church um, you get saved or you join a church or you, um, and we don't really like the idea of joining a church because we don't join a church. If you come, you're a member. If you don't, you're not. We, we're members of the body of Christ and we're members of Jesus and we, we, we happen to fellowship together. And, um, but let's say you came and you, 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 know, you got saved and, and your life is changing. But, but outside of church, you still have the same friends and the same circles and they're doing things that you're trying to distance yourself from. Um, it becomes difficult to, to break away from those things. So, you know, meeting people that are Christians, that are in the church, that are doing what you like to do, and, and that's some of the vision for our church. One of the ways we, we would like to accomplish that as we grow and as God goes on is with different um, ministries. For example, at home, 
um, in order to promote fellowship and friendship and life groups and things. Um, you know, no matter what you're into, it, um, we had back home, we had a, an equestrian ministry. And people that had horses and liked to ride horses, you know, they just got together and did horse rides and prayed before. And maybe somebody shared a devotion. And, you know, you're doing something you already love to do anyways. And now when you leave the house, you can just tell your family, oh, I got to go. It's ministry. I got to go ride my horse for ministry. I got to go ride my horse for Jesus, you know. Or you like to ride motorcycles. And so we had a, a four-wheel club. And they got together and they fellowshiped and they rode their motorcycles together. We had a camping ministry. And they liked to go camping. They got together. So, you know. Here, what do you guys like to do? You guys like to shoot, right? We have a shooting ministry here, you know? So, so um, anyways, good stuff, good stuff. Praise the Lord for the uh, coffee shop and for the donation on that. Amen? All right, we better get to it or we're never going to get to it. Hebrews chapter 6, um, little recap. You know, I, I built Hebrews chapter 6 as, and I do believe, one of the more difficult chapters in the Bible. I, I love really the style that God has given us and um, direction he's led me. I don't think that my style is better than anybody else's um, or the only way to skin a cat, but I, I am I'm thankful that as we go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, it forces us to deal with all of the topics in the Bible. Now, now as a church member, maybe it's not always the most exciting because if we weren't doing that, I could just pick all the highlights out of the Bible and every week I could just give you all the best highlights. But by doing that, we would never really tackle some of these tougher portions of the scripture. And so just going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, systematically through the Bible, um, we, we come to these things and we teach them. The other thing that I, I like about um, that style is just that I don't have to aim my sermon at anybody. You know, if there's something going on in the church, I don't have to pick a topic that, you know, is dealing with gossip or, you know, I'm, I'm aiming my sermon at somebody if, or if talking about money oftentimes is difficult, you know, and, and, and with this style. When the Bible talks about it, you talk about it. You don't shy away from it or skirt it. And, and then when the chapter covers it, you cover it. And if you cover the Bible that way, you'll cover all the topics and all the information. So the idea last week was kind of involved in the topic of Hebrews chapter 6 is can a Christian lose their salvation? And so we, we hopefully were clear last week in a very difficult chapter, lots of different interpretations. And again, I hope that, that as I teach you guys, as I share the word of God, that, that my attitude and my, my heart is that I, I don't think that my opinion is the perfect or the right theology or doctrine all the time. But I do think that, that it's, it's um, I have a good conscience about what I believe about the passage, what I teach. I couldn't teach it and believe it because Pastor Gerald, my pastor, believed it. I couldn't because somebody else that I read their commentary until I can get it in my heart and understand it and believe it and see it for myself. I can't teach it with a good conscience. So I don't necessarily believe or need to be right, but I do need to have a good conscience about what I teach, and I do have that. And what we said last week was that you can absolutely not lose your salvation. It's unbiblical that you can lose your salvation. But it is very biblical, according to Hebrews chapter 6, that you can leave your salvation. So our statement at the end of the day was you can't lose your salvation, but you can leave it. Once saved, always saved, unless you walk away. You can't lose it like you lose your car keys or your wallet. But you can make a conscious decision that you don't want to walk with the Lord anymore. And if you make this decision long enough and hard enough and establish it and you fight enough with the Holy Spirit, you can reach a point in your life where you've crossed the line of the unpardonable sin where you've reached a point in your life where you've hardened your heart so many times against God that, that the Bible says, like in Hebrews chapter 6, that at that point it would be impossible to renew you again unto, unto repentance. Not salvation. Very key that, that the Hebrews 6, 6 says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. It doesn't say salvation. Because the issue is, that, that, that at, the reason is, is we're not talking about a person who, you know, did something that was terrible or hardened their hearts and walked with the Lord at one time and is backslidden and says, man, I, I, I want to come back to the Lord. Or, or maybe I can't come back to the Lord because I crossed that line, but I really wish I could. We're not talking about that person. Because anybody and everyone who has it in their heart to come back to the Lord, Jesus will bring them back. The entire theme of the Bible is, is to return, is to come back, that you're always welcome, and no matter how far you've gone. No matter how far you've fallen, no matter how bad your sins are, you are always welcome to come and repent and come to the Lord's table. To, to receive salvation, there's nothing that will keep you from the love of Christ. 
We have example after example after example. In the area of moral sin, and somebody who was completely morally bankrupt and a terrible person, the thief on the cross. He was a hardened criminal who was a murderer and an insurrectionist and an evil person. And he repented on his deathbed and the grace of God covered all of his sins. And he went to heaven. We have, we have the young man who was the, the prodigal son who went away and he disrespected his father and the inheritance and the traditions. And, and he went away to Las Vegas and he spent his time on, on loose living, the Bible says. And, and when he came home, after he was completely, completely bankrupt, the father received him home and, and, and welcomed him back. And, and, and the welcome is for anybody who wants to be welcomed, the welcome mat is always out. The issue that we talked about in Hebrews chapter 6 last week is not for that person. But there is a person who can get to a point in their heart and life, and we see it in the Bible, where they don't want repentance. And when you don't want repentance, it's impossible again to renew you again to repentance. I believe that line, we called it cross the line. I do believe that line is very difficult to cross while you're still alive. But it is possible. It's not meant to scare any Christians that you're not saved. We're definitely not a theological or doctrinal church where, you know, and I've been seen them and I've been involved in them and seen them where you every week you come to church and you have to get saved. If you had some sin in the week, you have to get saved or you have to get some demon cast out of you every week. That's that's not good theology or doctrine. You're saved. You're born again. You repent once unto salvation and you repent continually unto sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus. Amen. All right. So that was recap. So um, really, we, we spent the entire last week covering that, those verses, 4 through 6. There's so much more in Hebrews that I don't want to leave undone. So we're going to cover verses 1 through 3 today, a little bit towards the end, and get ready for chapter 7 next week. We've been building up chapter 7 because in chapter 7, Paul is going to teach um, us about Melchizedek and the priesthood of Melchizedek. I've already spilled the beans a little bit, and in my um, very uh, right opinion, Melchizedek is a theophany. It's a Christophany. It's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ in the flesh. And, and, and again, that's, that's my opinion. There are some that would disagree with me and say that Melchizedek was just a man, but the more I look at it and study it and see it, I, I do not for the life of me figure out how this cannot be a Christophany. And a Christophany is actually not rare in the Old Testament. We, we have many Christophanies in the Old Testament very plainly and clearly. Jesus appeared to, and if I went through the list, which is next week's sermon, you, you know, you'd be like, wow, but Abraham, Joshua, Joseph, Gideon, um, uh, Samson's mother to tell her that Samson was going to be born, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, and on and on. That's at least six off the top of my head, concrete appearances of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And, and so to say that, um, to think that Melchizedek is another Christophany, I don't think is, is far-fetched, but again, I'll just throw it out there for your own consideration that there are some that, that would disagree with that. So um, that's where we'll be next week. So today, let's look at chapter 6, verse 1, and before we do, of course, I got like 10 more minutes of introduction. Now, maybe I should read a little bit and then talk, and it'll be like I'm teaching the scripture, but actually the introduction is teaching the chapter. It's, it's covering what I want to cover today, but um, the, the book of Hebrews um, has maybe a couple, but, but for our outline, let's, let's look at three. Everybody say three. Three points of, of outline for the book of Hebrews. Okay, not necessarily in order, but, but one of the themes, and you guys will have already picked this up, that the theme of the book of Hebrew, Hebrews is that Jesus is greater than X, Y, and Z. And we went through what the X, Y, and Z is painstakingly and laboriously. Paul is teaching to the Hebrew Christians. They're, they're, they're Jews that were living in the days of Jesus or post-Jesus that um, grew up in Judaism, have come to faith in Jesus Christ, are leaving the old system of the Mosaic law and, and coming and relating to God based on the New Testament system of grace and relationship. And Paul is teaching this group. Now, you and I have, would never walked a mile in these guys' shoes. We, we've never lived under the Mosaic law. And again, there was only one group of people in all of human history, that, a very unique generation that would have had this. For you and I, we were born and raised under the grace of Jesus, New Testament law, New Testament um, dispensation and covenant. But there was a group, one group, a very unique group, 
And maybe they were born sometime, um, you know, let's say around the year 15. And, 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 and they died in the year 70. They would have been born under the Mosaic law. They would have grown up related to God based on the law of Moses. And they would have died based on the new covenant or the New Testament. And so Paul is addressing this particular group. And he's, um, he's, he's, he's bringing them and showing them that Jesus is greater than all of the things of the Old Testament law and covenant of Moses. We've gone through that. That's number one. Number two, the book of Hebrews is about warning you and I. What is it warning us against? We got a big warning last week that, that, that it, it is impossible to renew, you, renew one again to salvation once they've, they've walked away and left. And become hardened of heart. The warning, let's look at a couple of these warnings for the book of Hebrews to keep it in context. But um, turn with just back one page. Let's go Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1. It says, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. Everybody. One more time. I'm going to read that verse. I'm going to pause there. I want you guys to read those last four words. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. It's a warning against drifting away. Is it possible for you as a believer to drift away in your faith? Absolutely. You know, one of the, one of the most heartbreaking and, and eye-opening things every year um, at the Calvary Chapel pastors, Senior Pastors Conference are the folks every year that were there last year and are not there this year because they've, they've fallen into some kind of moral sin. Or something has happened in their life and they've, they've walked away or drifted away or fallen away. And, and so there is a potential. The Bible is full. And the Bible talks. And Paul's going to call them out by name. He calls out Hymenius and Alexander the coppersmith. And, and he says that they've done me much harm and that they've, they've walked away and departed from the faith. And over and over again, if we're just being honest, if you look around this room, you probably have friends or people you knew at church that today are not walking with the Lord the way they once did. Amen? That's pretty factual, right? So the, so the book of Hebrews is a, is a warning. It's a continual warning to you and I that, that there is this possibility that we drift away in our faith. And Paul doesn't want you to do that. The, the third thing is, so again, the first thing is that Jesus is greater. The second thing is the warning against falling away. And, and, and the third thing is, I'm drawing a blank. The... the Grow up. I had it on the tip of my tongue. The third thing is grow up. So that's it. Those are the three. Okay? Grow up is the third one. Be careful. You could drift away. The third one is, hey, there, there's a season in your life as a believer that God expects, that Paul expects these Hebrews, and, and God looks at you and I, and he wants us to mature in our faith. The example that he used that we can all get our, our eyes and our mind around is that it's cute for a baby to drink a bottle. It's not cute for an adult to drink a bottle or suck on a pacifier. There, there comes a season in your life where you, you do away with these things. Now, I want to be super clear. Milk in the Bible, is, it's described as milk and meat. And Hebrews is meat. It's not the milk of the word. It's the hearty things. It's advanced things. But milk is not bad. We're going to cover milk today, and we're going to cover what's so important in chapter verse 2 uh, and what actually the milk of the gospel is and how important milk is. We need milk. Milk is the, the foundation of the, of the gospel of salvation, of baptism, of resurrection, of laying on hands, of important things that we all need in our faith. But there comes a point where we don't teach and preach those things. When pastor, not, not, I mean, on a regular basis, we always teach and preach them. We could preach the resurrection and the, and the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ at, to some degree every Sunday. But, you know, when Pastor Chuck, when Calvary Chapel first started, Pastor Chuck Smith was a four-square denominational pastor, and he was like in his fourth pastorate in about two years. And he arrived in Costa Mesa, California. It was close to the beach, and, and he wanted to stay there. And he was an itinerant pastor, and he was going from church to church. And when he got to this little church, 25 people in a little little white building, um, in Costa Mesa, California, and, and, and Chuck wanted to be an evangelist in his heart. And so every week he would preach the, these elementary principles of salvation and, and, and evangelical mes messages so that people would get saved and ask Jesus in their heart. Well, pretty soon all 25 people were saved, and every Sunday Chuck was frustrated because he was preaching about evangelistic messages and nobody was getting saved. 
Well, they were already saved. How many times do you need to get saved? So, so, so God spoke to Chuck, and he just realized the problem with that. He, and then, and then he, he knew that there, there came a time where it, it's, it's not time to preach that people get saved every week. It's a time to teach them and to see them grow and mature in the faith and go on to other things and begin to cover. And that's when he decided in his heart, very simply, and I know profoundly by the Holy Spirit, but Chuck won't say that. Chuck will say it just happened naturally. He just decided that he was going to teach the, the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and take those 25 people through the entire Bible, every word in the Bible. Two, two reasons. Number one, because he, he, he was dealing, he wanted to see him mature and grow, and now that they're saved. And number two, he figured if he did that, it would take him a long time, and he could stay in the little church in Costa Mesa close to the beach, and they wouldn't send him on to somewhere else. So that's how spiritual the beginnings of Calvary Chapel were. But there is that, that call, number three, for us to grow up. Amen? So let's look at chapter 6, verse 1, and it says, Therefore we did already, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on. One more time. You guys say that with me. Let us go on. One more time. Let us go on. So again, that, that, that's another way to say let us grow up. Let us go on to more things in the faith. You know, when I first became a Christian, I shared this with you guys two weeks ago. When I first became a Christian, I was involved in a most amazing family. Loved Jesus. They're the reason why I walk with Jesus today. But unfortunately, the circle that they were in, they had been Christians for 30 years. And they were actually very immature in their faith because they had never really grown up. And I was introduced into this family with, you know, TBN. I remember it was Benny Hinn. And it was just really doctrinally bad teaching and, and theology and, 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 a, and a lack of, of maturity. And in that season, you know, on all these people that were around me as a new believer, God told me that there would come a day when he would give me an understanding that would surpass that of my elders. And, and not, not an issue of pride or, or, or arrogance. And never did I, you know, boast like Joseph you know, they were going to bow down to me. That wasn't the issue. And I wasn't there long that long in that circle. But there came a season very soon where I, I began to study the Word of God. And I left right after that for Calvary Chapel Bible College and became a student of the Word. And with a short period of time, I began to grow leaps and bounds in my faith. And, and for the first two years, we didn't grow like that because I wasn't in a place where the Word of God was, was really being taught. But as I got into the Word of God, as I began to read the Word of God and study, my, my faith began to grow. And now only being a Christian for a couple years, God had given me an understanding that surpassed that of my elders. And so there is this call for you and I to grow up, to move on, to go on. He says, going on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of the laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. So listen, there are six points that Paul just pointed out that he calls the um, foundation of repentance is the one, or I'm sorry, in verse six, the elementary principles. And then he lists the six things that he calls the elementary principles. Now, what many churches do, we haven't done it here. Uh, we did a kind of a little different version of the same thing. But you take these six principles that are listed here in Hebrews, and you use them to teach your new believers class. And again, the, Paul is not saying, nor are we ever saying, that any of these things in this list of six are unimportant. Paul just says, at some point... We don't just go week after week, year after year, month after month, going over these same six principles. There comes a time where we grow in our faith, where we move on to more mature things. But let's take a look just at these six things because they are foundational to your faith. And I realize that in this room this size, we, we have people that are in different places in their walk with Christ. And so the first one, if you, write, if you take notes or write things down, I wrote in my Bible a one, two, three, four, five, six, just next to each one. If you take notes on a separate sheet of paper, you can write them down. The first one is repentance from dead works. That's the first of the six elementary principles. Now, I just want to say in its context, right, Paul is talking to who? Hebrew Christians who are coming out of Judaism. So what they're repenting from are dead works, that the, the works of the law of Moses won't save you. They need to repent from the rituals and the um, things that they were doing in the Old Testament in order to gain righteousness with God. In its context, for you and I, maybe more suiting, because for you and I, we're not repenting from dead works. 
when we, before we were Christians, you know, we weren't involved in a religious system that was bankrupt. We had sin. We were sinners. We were corrupt, as were some of you. So for us, it would more be repentance of sin. But in this context, Paul is saying repentance of dead works. But we know that we need to repent. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Bible says that we are a new creation in Christ. That, that all things are made new when we become a believer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. So the idea of, of um, repentance from sin, repentance from dead works, is, is that, listen, there is proof of repentance in your life. Listen, if you say that you've repented, you've become a Christian, you're a Christ follower, there's something in your life that will show that and prove that. And again, I don't mean to be, you know, um, needlessly offensive or harsh to you, but it is a reality and a truth. You, you cannot say, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Jesus, and there's nothing in your life that says that. The Bible is just super, super clear. John the Baptist, when the, when the um, um, Pharisees and Sadducees were coming to him, and, and again, they were claiming change, John said, hypocrites, bahumbug. He said, show fruits worthy of repentance. And John just called it a, a spade a spade. Show fruits worthy of repentance. If there's repentance in your life, there'll be some fruit of that. Now, James, right, we studied this in detail recently. James said, faith without works is dead. And, and again, it's, it's, it's not like, you know, you, you have to perform. You have to, you know, work to please God. It's just simply to say this, that the baptism of or that the, the doctrine of repentance means that you realize that you're a sinner you need a Savior. You've asked Jesus in your heart to be your Lord and Savior. And, and that as a result, your life will change. You cannot be the same person you used to be as a believer in Christ. You can't do the same things. You can't be comfortable in, in your sins and, 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 and walk with Jesus. Amen? There should be some conviction. There should be some desire. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to get rid of all your sin. You just have to put them before Jesus. And allow Jesus to begin to work on him. And allow Jesus to begin to convict you and call him and draw him out of your life. I had so much garbage in my life when I became a Christian. Yuck, yuck, yuck on top of yuck. Just piled up baggage of just nonsense that at 20 years old, fully addicted to drugs. And, and no Jesus for 20 years of my life and everything that went with that. There was no way I could have stopped all my sins when I got saved in order to come to Jesus. I just came to Jesus, didn't even know what it was or anything. I just, God just called me. I was alone in my room watching TV. And I don't recommend those guys on TV, but I was actually was Dr. Charles Stanley. And I had a real Holy Spirit experience. And the Holy Spirit called me and drew me and he was preaching a sermon and he was talking right to me. And I began to weep alone in my room at 20 years old. And at the end of his 40 minute sermon, he said, if you want to ask Jesus in your heart, say this prayer with me. And I was on my bed and I, I had my I locked my hands like this and I'm weeping profusely. And I put my arms out like this and, and I begin to pray this prayer. And I feel the power of God's Holy Spirit come into my life alone in my room at 20 years old. That's the day I got saved. And, and, and on that day, I just had junk. And the next day, I just couldn't fix it all and get rid of it in order to, to, to please Jesus. But here's what happened. I, I just began to, to focus on loving and knowing Jesus personally. And, and it took a little bit longer for me, I think, than, than maybe for most and some. And God was gracious. But over a period of about six months, I wasn't doing those things anymore. Why? I just didn't want to do them anymore. They were just falling out of my life. I didn't, I didn't not do them because I, oh, I had to, you know, I was trying to, to, to do good works and be righteous or holy. I just didn't want to do those things anymore. God was taking that desire and changing me and making me a new person. And God gave me such an amazing and, and clear direction as a new believer with nobody in my life that was Christian. He said, abide in me. And, and so my focus early was just to, just to stay focused on Jesus and by the grace of God, I was able just to focus on my relationship with Jesus and, and things in my life began to change. Amen? So there's this repentance from dead works. And then the second one, it says um, faith toward God. Or I'm sorry, yeah, faith toward God is number two. 
Now, um, in Hebrews chapter 11, right here, you can stay there or turn with me if you want. But in Hebrews chapter 11, in verse 6, it says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, I want to tell you, faith is not what the world or what even religion wants you to think faith is. I've had people tell me before that um, as a faith statement, oh, it's just you just have to have blind faith, right? Absolutely not. I have no blind faith. I have factual evidence for what I believe. What I believe is the truth, and I don't, would never follow anything by blind faith. I have a great faith. But, but the biblical definition of faith, um, Paul gives us in the same chapter. He says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Biblical faith is evidence. It's scientific evidence. It's factual evidence. That's what faith is. And there's evidence for my faith. There, you can substantiate and prove what I believe. But no matter how well you can prove it out, there still comes a point where Paul gets to in verse 6 of Hebrews 11, that it requires faith. I can't see God. I can't touch Jesus today. And, and without some faith, it's impossible. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. I have to believe. I have to place faith in a God that I can't see. And God won't accept me any other way. Do you know why the intellectual and the PhD and, and so many of these scientists struggle at, at becoming Christian or somebody who says, if God would just do this, then I would believe. They'll never believe because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And it really puts the cart before the horse in God's economy. God says, if you believe first, then I'll show you the scientific evidence and I'll prove to you the the things. I'll do things in your heart and life that you you want to be seen, but I'm not going to do them for you first so that you'll believe. You have to believe first. And then as you're a believer and you begin to walk with the Lord, God begins to do these things miraculously and show you and prove you. You know, and today after walking with the Lord for 25 years, I know that I know that I know that I know that I'm saved. I know that I know that I know that Jesus is alive. And the hope that I have, it's not wishful thinking. I hope the light's going to turn green. No. When I say I hope I'm going to go to heaven, it's a surety. It's a confidence. An absolute surety. And the hope that's in Jesus is different. Like the faith that's in, in the Lord is different. So you have to have a faith. Paul tells us in Romans 10:9, trust and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The Bible says that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so there's a faith that God requires. Number three, look at me in verse two with me. It says of the doctrine of baptism. Hey, notice something on the on the end of that word baptism in verse two. A what? An S. Did you guys see that S on the end of baptism? Baptisms. What does that mean? Well, pretty simple. There's plural baptisms in the Bible that's the basic doctrines of our faith. When you think of baptism, you automatically, maybe not, but I automatically think of water baptism. So the foundation to our faith is that you, as a Christ follower, should be water baptized. We did water baptisms here Sunday night. Let's give the Lord a hand. We had nine people. Amen. We had nine people get baptized into the faith, and it's always... The most exciting thing for me as a pastor is baptisms. You know, we do a lot that's, that's, that's thankless or I don't get to see fruit and reward. But, you know, when I get to baptize people, that's always a super special blessing for me. It's, it's an exclamation point on, on the ministry. People getting baptized and publicly making a declaration of their faith. And, and, and if you've never been water baptized, you, you should talk to God and you should pray about it. But I, I'm encouraging you in a step of obedience to be water baptized. Okay. But water baptism doesn't save you. Okay, when I grew up as a young person, really with no God, I had some friends and some people and maybe even some family members, and I wasn't baptized. I'd never been water baptized. But I can remember as a young person being scared, not knowing Jesus, living my life like hell, but thinking I would go to hell because I didn't get water baptized. If all I had to do was get water baptized, I could continue to live like hell, and I would go to heaven. But that's just simply not true. You You take a wet a sinner in you that's not repentant of the heart and you put him in water, all you have is a wet sinner. But, but, but baptism is, a, is an outward sign of what's inwardly taking place in your heart. And we should, in obedience, um, get water baptized and be water baptized. So I encourage you all in that. 
And, and, and as far as our church is concerned, we just try to do them on an as-needs basis. Usually works out to be about four or five times a year we'll do baptisms. And so let me know if you want to be water baptized. And once I hear from three, four, or five people, we'll, we'll put one on the calendar. And then, and then um, the, the word S, baptisms, Jesus was baptized with water, not because he, he had sin, but because he did it as an example for you and I. And then the other, the other baptism we see in the Bible very clearly is in Acts chapter 2, and it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to be very frank about the baptism of the Holy Spirit in this church. I really believe, and, and I hope this offends some of you, I really believe this is an area of disobedience in the church today and in our church and, and, and within the four walls of this building. Um, the Bible says the, the doctrine of baptisms. Listen, I want to tell you this, and, and this is not hyper-Pentecostal. This is not crazy Jesus freak stuff. This is standard biblical truth. God calls you not only to be baptized in water, but also to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And when it comes to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I think some of our attitudes is that we, you know, that's weird or that's hokey or I don't need that. I'm, I'm fine just with, with the baptism of water and with my walk with the Lord. And we avoid the baptism of the Holy Spirit for fear. I don't know what we're afraid of. I think you're afraid you're going to be in the Walmart checkout line and, and getting ready to check out for your groceries. And you're going to start speaking in tongues and shaking because the Holy Spirit got a hold of you or something like I, I don't know, but that, that doesn't happen. You, you know, traditionally, um, historically, one of the issues in the nation of Israel was that God had called them, according to the law of Moses, to, to do what was called circumcision on all the male children. And, and throughout Israel's history, we find these areas where, where Israel as a nation was disobedient in this area of circumcision. And, and, and at times, God dealt with them on, on this issue of disobedience. And it was a national thing. It was a thing in, in, in the, in, with the nation and the children and the people of Israel where, where they went through seasons and huge pockets of disobedience to the law of Moses in the area of circumcision. And honestly, I really believe that, that, that to some degree that, that the church today is, is guilty of the same thing in the area of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and we just are not stepping out in obedience. You know, how, how do you get baptized with the Holy Spirit? The Bible says you ask. A-S-K, that's it. Jesus said you have not because you ask not. Jesus gave a parable about a father whose, whose son came and asked him for a piece of bread. And the father said, oh, here's a rock, chew on this. And his, his son came and asked him for some fish. And he gave him a snake and he said, here, play with this. And he said, you wouldn't do that as an earthly father to your son. And how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ASK, to those who ask? And specifically in the context of what Jesus was talking about, he was talking in that parable and that, that analogy about the Holy Spirit and about us asking to be baptized. The disciples were baptized in the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. They had already received the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 21, they're on the shore. The Bible says Jesus breathed on them and said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. If Jesus breathes on you and says, receive the Holy Spirit, what's going to happen to you? You're going to receive the Holy Spirit. I promise you that. Why then, in the very next context, did Jesus say, go to Jerusalem and tarry ye there until I send the Holy Spirit? Because it's two separate, um, two separate baptisms that Jesus was, was talking about. It's two separate experiences with the Holy Spirit. The first one is when you're born again, the Holy Spirit comes in your life and you receive the Holy Spirit. You, you don't go to heaven without the Holy Spirit. But then the next experience as you grow in your faith is to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I encourage you guys in that. You know, and, and as far as, you know, and I don't have time right now. We're running out of time. I got merely seconds left and I got to cover two more things. But the, the, I think part of what people are get afraid of is this whole thing because everybody wants to tie speaking in tongues with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I think it helps, maybe helps you understand, but I speak in tongues. Have you ever heard me speak in tongues? A few of my very closest friends raise their hands. 
Nobody else in here raised their hands because you've never heard me speak in tongues. I've never spoken in tongues from this pulpit or in this church publicly. I speak, I've been speaking in tongues for 25 years. It's something that I do privately. It's something that I do maybe on occasion in a very intimate setting with close friends who are believers. But it's a very valuable part of my life as a Christian, as a Christ follower, is to be able to speak in tongues and to be able to pray to God in the Spirit. And, and, and again, it's not something that, that, that I flaunt or that we use publicly. And, and not everybody who receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit speaks in tongues. That's okay. Don't be afraid. I would, I would, I would encourage you to desire the gift. But it's not even the greatest gift. The Bible, Paul says to encourage us in the gifts of the Spirit to desire the greatest gift, which is the gift of prophecy. And, and, and how much better to be able to speak to people in your life things of encouragement and things about their future that will help them be better Christians and be encouraged and walk and have the, the gift of prophecy. And that we should seek that gift. But it, as a byproduct of receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit, if, if God allows me to speak in tongues, praise God. To this day, I'm super thankful for the way I received the gift of speaking in tongues. Because I didn't know anything about it. I didn't have somebody, you know, because unfortunately there are experiences. And may, maybe some of you are afraid and, and, and don't like the idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because you, Holy Spirit because you had a bad experience. You went to some church somewhere and, you know, the pastor was trying to get you baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so he put his hands on you and he started shaking you. And, and he said, receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues and... And repeat after me, she rode in on a Honda, she rode in on a Honda, she rode in on a Honda. And you're like, she, she rode in on a Honda. And then just let, let your tongue loose. And, you know, like, oh, that was weird. Or, or maybe you went to a church where people were speaking in tongues in the church out loud, and you were a new believer and you weren't ready to receive that, and, and it scared you. And so your, your attitude since that point has been, oh, I don't want that. Listen. That's why, we, that's why the Bible says that it should be done decently and in order. Should never, the, the, the gift of tongues shouldn't be used in a public setting unless there's an interpreter. If I broke out right now and began to speak in tongues, if there wasn't a person in this room who God also spoke the interpretation of what I said to the rest of the body, then that, that, that gift is being used out of order and not, not according to the biblical standards. And so we don't do it. At Calvary Chapel, what we'll do is um, in an afterglow setting, in a believers meeting where we have believers who are seeking God, there's times where we have liberty and one will speak in tongues, but always with an interpretation. And, and, but again, I don't want to get off on that. I'm not even teaching on tongues. I don't know why I'm getting so far onto it, just because it led that way. But listen, this is what I want to say that I don't want you guys to miss. I, I don't want you to be afraid of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I don't want you to say or to have an attitude because I think it's a bad attitude, guys. And in love, and in love, I think it's sin for us to say the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not for me. Don't take that attitude, please. It is for you. Is water baptism for you? Does this baptism, the doctrine of baptism here, have an S on it or does it not? All right, that's all I can say about that. Um, you got to come to one of my Holy Ghost services to get baptized in the Holy Spirit. Um. Hey, number four, laying on of hands. Hey, we're going to cover these last two. Pat went really long in announcements, so it's his fault. But we're going to cover these last, these last two, and then we'll get you guys out of here. So the, um, so the elementary principle of laying on of hands. Now, quickly, um, there is a power, a biblical power, when we lay hands on somebody, um, according to the Bible, that doesn't come from us. It just comes from obedience. But, the, but um, we, we, we see it throughout the scriptures. The Bible tells us when we pray for somebody to lay hands on them, um, we see Ab or not Abraham, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, the patriarch of the 12 tribes, has a son, Joseph. Joseph goes to Egypt. He has two sons. He doesn't know his father. Finally meets his dad at the end of his life. Jacob's about to die. He's, pro he's pronouncing a blessing on all of his 12 sons and grandsons. And he goes to bless Joseph's two sons, and he lays his hands on them like this. Because Joseph put the oldest son on his right side, the youngest son on his left side, because the right hand of blessing was greater than the left hand. So as, as, as Israel or Jacob went to bless Joseph's sons, he switched his hands. And Joseph said, Dad, Dad, hold on, you got your hand on the wrong one. And he said, No, I don't, son. 
the, 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 the lesser will serve, or the greater, the lesser will serve the greater, the greater will serve the lesser. Basically, that the better blessing is going to go untraditionally to the younger. And that was God's prophecy over these two, two young men. But, but, but again, the laying on of hands is something that we see biblically throughout the scriptures. We use it today. It's for us today. Okay? Again, you know, I, I, I wish I had like some Mr. Miyagi hands, you know. And I can lay hands on you and something cool would happen. But it's by faith. We don't know. It's not, again, it's not medicinal. It's not, but, but we do it in obedience to God's word. We lay hands on folks and pray for them. Um, sometimes I will ask you guys if we have someone come up and they're leaving or they're sick and we as a church are going to gather around. I'll say, if you'd like to come up and lay hands on them, please do so. If you, if you want to stay in your seat, you're welcome to. Maybe if you're comfortable, raise a holy hand to the Lord. It's just in obedience to this principle. Okay. So, so by raising a holy hand or not, it's a matter of faith. And if you have enough faith and you, you, you just believe that there's something in it, God will use it. Okay? And then the other part of laying on hands that we see that's biblical is um, imparting, ordination, gifting. So when we lay hands on somebody, like for example, we, we call somebody a pastor. We, call, we raise somebody up. We make somebody an elder in the church or a board member. That's called laying on of hands. So as a church... We, we ordain folks. Now, what ordination is, now we don't, as a church or as a pastor or as a people, have the power to ordain anybody. God ordains, God gifts, but what, what ordination is in the church is us recognizing, we see, we see Jay, for example, Jay has a gift for ministry, we, we hang out with him for a couple years, we see he has a gift to teach, we, we all agree that he has a gift for, for ministry, and so we ordain him. We're not giving him something that he, that he didn't already have. We're not giving him any more power or any more gifting. All we're doing as a church when we ordain folks by laying hands on them is, is saying, yeah, we recognize that God has gifted and called you. You guys get that? Okay, so that's that's ordination, the laying on of hands. Um, you know, the Bible says about laying on of hands with responsibility, lay hands on no man suddenly. So we got to be careful, too. It's very easy to hire somebody. It's very difficult to what? Fire somebody. It's easy to ordain somebody as a leader or a pastor in our ministry. It's very difficult when they decide they don't like us anymore to tell them they're not no longer a, a, a leader or a pastor or a, a leader in our church anymore. Um, last, almost last one. We're done quickly. Give me one, two minutes. The resurrection of the dead. Okay. Just make a note there. John chapter 11. That's the doctrine of the elementary principles of the resurrection of the dead. Basically it's this in a nutshell. Um, you will rise again from the dead. Okay. There'll be only one generation that will not rise from the dead. That will be the generation that goes up in the rapture. They'll never taste physical death. Every other generation in human history, Jesus said to Martha on the road after Lazarus had died, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And then Martha said, yes, Lord. So you will never die. That's kind of cool. So at my funeral, don't say Pastor Chris died because that's just not true. Say Pastor Chris moved. Pastor Chris changed his address, or he started living, because we'll really be living for the first time. And then the last one is um, eternal judgment. And just in a nutshell, the the doctrine of eternal judgment is that there is an eternal judgment. If you're writing, if you're taking notes, you can write down um, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, and it says this, it says, and it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. And, and so it, it's just very simple and very clear that, that there is eternal judgment, meaning that there's a heaven and there's a hell, and there's a judgment based on who goes to heaven and who goes on to hell. And, and God will righteously judge, and it's appointed a man once to die, and then the judgment. Listen, the, that, that verse is um, proof text for a couple things. Number one, that there's no gray area in salvation. And, the, and why do I say that? Because there are certain religions and doctrines and denominations that teach you get a second chance after you die. Catholic Church teaches a place called purgatory. And some sinners can go to purgatory and, and they can pay off their sins and then they, they, go to he, they can eventually go to heaven. 
Some can be baptized for the dead and pull them out of purgatory type situations. But as far as the Bible is concerned, the Bible says it's appointed man once to die and then the judgment. That's it. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's no, no middle ground. There's no eternal sleep. There's no spirit sleep. There's no purgatory. There, there, this is it, folks. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Hey, next week, Melchizedek. I've been studying for three weeks on it, so I'll probably thoroughly com- uh, complicate it. But I'll tell you this. Melchizedek is Jesus. That's all you really need to know. He absolutely is Jesus, our high priest. And uh, so, hey, we want to give everybody an opportunity today to, to make sure that you know, that you know, that you know that you're born again. The, the, the gift of salvation is a free gift that God offers you, and everybody is invited and welcome to come in. That, that you don't earn it, you receive it by faith and by, and by the grace of God, he gives it to you. And, and, and then you focus only on one thing, just getting to know Jesus. You don't have to fix yourself. You don't have to be and focus on being good or doing good or doing right. Do you realize the Bible is not a book of morals? It's not a book of standards and of do right and do wrong. The Bible is um, a book of relationship with Jesus. And, And in the relationship with Jesus, God will heal you and fix you. So the invitation is for you to have a, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. To say yes to Jesus in your heart. To, to know that you're a sinner, that you need a Savior, to ask Jesus to come into your life and forgive you and begin a relationship with him. And that's salvation. It's a full surrender of your heart and life to Jesus. So I want to give everybody in here an opportunity to make a full surrender of their heart and life to Jesus. Will you bow your head and close your eyes? I'm going to ask us to pray. Ask the whole church to pray out loud. And, and if you're in here today and you're praying this prayer for the first time or, or maybe for the tenth time, But you really mean it today, and today you've really made a surrender, and the Holy Spirit has called you and drawn you. And today you want to respond. You say these words, and and today will be the day you receive salvation, such as I did at 20 years old, alone in my room, the day that I said this prayer and meant it from my heart. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, please come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. I believe that Jesus died on a cross and rose again the third day. I believe in my heart and I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Forgive me of my sins. I give you my life. In Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. God bless you guys. We love you guys. Have a wonderful day.